Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. Well, it was the middle of the night and a Christian family was fast asleep. It was a quiet, dark night in Jerusalem. Suddenly, though, there was a pounding on the door. The torch lights flashed outside of their windows. The the door crashed open. Soldiers with swords swarmed the rooms. The family awoke, confused. Children were crying. Burly soldiers yelled and pushed and threatened. Grandpa fell to the ground. Mom and dad were bound, dragged out of the house, taken and dropped in a dungeon in Jerusalem. That prison was full of other Christians as well. Who could do something so cruel? Well, according to the Apostle Paul in Acts 22 in his testimony, he was the one who did things like that. In Acts 22, 4, he testifies before he came to know Christ as his Savior, he persecuted the church. He persecuted Christians to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Not there yet. He wrote about in his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, that he was a blasphemer, that he was a persecutor, he was an insolent opponent. I mean, he, before he came to Christ, was an angry, raging, religious fanatic. In fact, one of these stories appears in Acts chapter 7. When there was a man named Stephen, he preached the gospel. And so he was brought before the Sanhedrin. He was falsely accused. A mob besieged him. False witnesses lied about him. But Stephen, he was full of the grace of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he spoke to them and actually preached to them with courage and with humility and with peace and joy. In fact, so much so that they said that his face looked like an angel. Stephen passionately proclaimed the gospel to the Sanhedrin. He spoke of the Old Testament and how the Messiah was promised to come. And then he looked at that Sanhedrin and he said, you are the ones who killed the righteous one. The scripture says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. Imagine that. Jesus was standing at the right hand of God and he said... Behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He saw the risen Christ. But when he said he saw that, a mob grabbed him, dragged him outside of the city. They hurled stones, crushed his body and his head, and they murdered him. And the one who oversaw that whole thing was a man named Saul, Paul. How could this man be so cruel and hate-filled? Well, this was Paul without the grace of God. Paul was a great sinner, terrible sinner, But greater, greater than Paul's sin was the grace of God. You see, Paul was traveling down a road, the road Damascus. He was going to another city to do this very same thing in that city to Christians. And God's grace appeared to him. Christ spoke to him. And the grace of God so touched his soul that he was saved. 
Listen to what Paul said that he was going to do and he did in many of these towns. I mean, he, he locked up saints in prison. He voted to have them executed. He punished them often. He tried to make them blaspheme, enraging fury against them. He persecuted them even in foreign cities. That was what he was going to do in those cities. That is who Paul was. But the grace of God touched Paul's soul and he was rescued from himself, rescued from his sin, rescued from his punishment and rescued unto God. It's an amazing story to think about. It's amazing truth to think about how God saved him. And how did God save him? Well, God saved him by grace. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 that God called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me. In other words, what Paul is saying is that salvation is all by grace. Paul attributed his salvation to God's saving grace. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminded us of the gospel. And he says that we are saved by the grace of God. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves sinners through saving faith, based upon saving truth. And the last truth we're going to look at this morning is by saving grace, by saving grace. Salvation is not of ourselves. It's not of religious denomination or of some group of people. It is by Christ alone. Salvation is through saving faith in Christ. Salvation is based upon the saving truth about Christ and by the saving grace of Christ. In fact, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and notice in verses 1 and 2 that salvation is through saving faith in Christ. Would you notice verse 1? Now I would remind you, brothers, Paul writes, of the gospel. I preach to you, which you received, that's faith, you received it, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And then in verses 3 through 8, Paul reminds them that the gospel is based upon the saving truth about Christ. What did Christ do to save us? Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then verse 8, Paul begins his own testimony about the risen Christ appearing to him. Verse 8, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. And then he further explains that the gospel is by grace when he gives his testimony in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that was with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. The focus of this sermon here this morning is on Paul's testimony there in the gospel truth that we are saved by grace alone. Notice in verse number two that we are saved. Let's remember that Salvation is about God rescuing us. This is the hope. This is the promise. Verse 2, by which you are being saved. And so just to review, remember, there's a past tense aspect to salvation. We were saved when we believed. We were born again. That was a, a point in time. And at that moment, we, are no, we were no longer under condemnation. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved unto God. We are his children forever. We're saved 
in a sense of a future tense. There will be a day when Christ will come and he will resurrect our bodies. He'll give us a resurrected body. He will resurrect this earth and we will be saved from the presence of sin and we will be saved to fellowship with him forever. Right here, though, it's in the present tense. In other words, we are being saved. Jude 24 declares this present salvation like this. To him who is able to keep you from falling. To present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. In other words, salvation is also present tense. He, he holds us fast. Right? That's, what the song, that's the song we just sang. When I fear my faith will fail, I need to be saved again. Is that what it says? That's not what the song says, right? When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. Right? When the tempter would prevail, no, he will hold me fast. He keeps us saved. He sanctifies us. He's working to make us more like Jesus Christ. So this is salvation in the present. He keeps us, sanctifies us. And this is all done by the grace of God. Look at verse 10. Salvation is only by grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Before we go any further, we must again remember what grace is. Grace speaks of God's disposition toward undeserving sinners. Grace is God's love in action. Grace is God's love in action. Grace is what flows from the eternal, loving heart of God to those who don't deserve his love. Grace is the kindness of God towards those who have done nothing to earn it. Grace is a word that describes the powerful, loving hand of God in our lives. So this is my definition of grace. I've given this before, but you can write this down again if you don't have it. Grace is God's work of love to those who don't deserve it. And friends, can I tell you, that's every person on this earth. No one deserves God's work of love, but he offers grace. And one of the aspects of grace is common grace. That is that all creatures on this earth experience an aspect of God's grace in that God gives them life. He gives them provision. They get to enjoy this beautiful, wonderful world that God has given to us. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. So God has this common grace he extends to people. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 45, that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. The rain falls on the wicked and on the good. The point is, is that God shows grace to many different people. In fact, Jesus even said in Luke six thirty five that God is kind to the ungrateful. And the wicked. Why? Why would God do that? Because that's who God is. God is a God of grace. Grace eternally gushes forth from the eternal nature of God. Creation and providence and life on earth are given by God's common grace. And so what should be the response of us, his creatures, to those just common graces in life? What should it be? Praise, right? Praise the Lord. I mean, did you wake up this morning, get out of bed and say, God, thank you that I'm alive? Like that's God's grace that you're alive. Did you sit down with your food and you look at your food and you say, God, Thank you for this food. When we say, or people say we give grace, what we're doing is we're saying, God, you're the one who gave this to me. Do we thank God for the blessings of our life? 
when you get that paycheck in the mail or when you see it in your bank account, do you look at that and say, God gave that to me? Praise you, God. I don't even own it. It's not mine. God gave it to me. Well, you say, well, I worked for it. He gave you the job. Well, I got the job. God gave that job to you, and he also gave you the ability to do the job. The point is, it's all of God's common grace. And that's, and that's why, friends, we have these boxes in the back. That's why we give online. That's why we give to the Lord, not because we're trying to earn something from God, because God owns it anyways. And we say, it's yours, and we want to give you the first fruits of it in praise to you. Hey, kids, when's the last time you thank God for your parents? Do you realize having parents who feed you <laughs> and let you live in your home, and if, especially if they love you, that's God's grace to you? But when we don't praise God, when we complain, when we gripe, when we moan, it's like spitting on the grace of God. It's like saying, God, you're not good. And your work is not loving in my life. And can I tell you that's wicked, that's wrong, that hurts the heart of God. So there's the common grace, but then there's this special saving grace. Saving grace rescues the lost sinner from hell. Saving grace brings sinners into the family of God. Saving grace supernaturally. Think about this. When you come to Christ and saving grace touches your heart, saving grace imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to your unrighteous soul so that God declares you're righteous, not because you are, but because Christ is and he's given that and put it on your account. Saving grace fills the empty soul with the all-satisfying joy of the Holy Spirit and fellowship of Christ. Saving grace eternally commits to fulfilling God's promises to you That's saving grace. God's work of love to those who don't deserve it. And as we look at verse 10 here, we can see God's grace. But what I want to do is I want to go to the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. I want to show you God's grace throughout this book. So would you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Because we could go through the entire Bible and we could see that God's goodness in our life and particularly in regard to rescuing sinners, is attributed to his grace. But you can also see it here in 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. And look at verse 3. Paul greets the church, but the very first thing he really says to them in verse 3 is grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might read this when you're reading through the epistles and you think, oh yeah, it's a nice greeting. Is there a reason why he starts off saying grace to you? Do you realize in the 13 letters that Paul penned that every one of those letters starts off with grace to you? Like this here, grace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is if you flip, go flip back to the very end of the book. You're going to come back to chapter 1, so don't worry. But go back to 1 Corinthians 16. And notice 1 Corinthians 16, verse 23. So there were in 1 Corinthians, it's right before 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, 23. Notice verse 23, how he ends the book. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So go back to 1 Corinthians 1, so I don't lose our place there. So he starts 1 Corinthians 1 by saying, the grace of God to you, grace to you, and then he ends with saying, grace with you. In John Piper's book called Future Grace, he explains what his perspective on this and why he does this. He says, he believes that he starts off with grace to you because Paul is about to write Holy Scripture. This is from the Holy Spirit to these individuals. So he's saying, I'm starting off this book by saying, listen to this. I'm about to say to you or really write to you what God has to say. So this is God's grace to you. We all have these phones in our pockets and our purses or whatever else you have them stored. 
In order for those things to work, there must be power to that device. You have to plug that device in. And our souls are like that device. Your soul cannot work, cannot fellowship with God without grace. And so Paul's letters here are like grace to you. It's like he plugs in your soul to the supernatural power source of grace. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, verse 3, Acts 20, verse 32, the, the writer Luke, the historian Luke, describes Paul's preaching the word of God as this, the words of his grace, the words of God's grace. In other words, the scripture right here, this is grace to you. When you get up in the morning and you read God's holy word, that's grace ministering to your soul. It's how God lovingly works in your heart to comfort you, to encourage you, to build you up. That's why it's so important that we're in the word of God. When you gather with the church here under the word of God, this right here, what we're doing is a means of God's grace. God is loving his church by communicating his word to his people and building them up. And it's a powerful work. That's why we must commit to sit under the preaching of the grace of the word of God. So it's grace to you. And then at the end of the letter, it's grace with you. Why why the difference there? This is what Piper writes. Grace does not stay locked up in the scroll in the safe. It's not like grace stays in in the book here. He says... That grace goes with you because Christ goes with you by the power of his Holy Spirit. So it's like the end of the book. He's saying, now you receive grace and now go with the grace of God. Then look at verse 4. I mean, he talks about grace again. And he praises God for saving grace in Jesus Christ. Verse 4 of this is chapter 1 now, 1 Corinthians I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God, notice this, that was given you in Christ Jesus. So verse 4 teaches that every spiritual blessing is a result of God's grace to you in Christ. Grace comes from the Father through the Son By the Holy Spirit. In other words, grace is the triune work of God. Grace is a work of the triune God. It's one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father is the head. He's the governor of grace. The Son did the work on the cross. And he, through his cross work, provides grace. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies grace to your soul. Grace is like a gushing stream that flows from the heart of the Father through the cross directed by the Holy Spirit to the undeserving soul. Grace is like a gushing stream that flows from the heart of the Father through the cross of Christ directed by the Holy Spirit to the heart that's undeserving so he says the grace of God was given to you in Christ Jesus. And it's so important for us to understand this in grace. And that is that grace is from God. There's no other source of grace. It doesn't come from anywhere else but God. It starts with God. He is the, he first and foremost is the source of grace. And what makes grace grace is that it comes from him and not from us. Grace flows out of the infinite depths of the fountain of God's self-sufficiency. In other words, because God in and of himself is all wisdom and all power, and he's, he's good and he's wise and he's loving, because he is those things, when that is directed at you and God touches your soul, we call that grace. And when God's grace touches your soul, When he touches that which is unworthy and wicked and sinful, what happens? God's grace supernaturally changes. Grace recreates 
that soul into a new creation. And he gifts that soul with the blessings of Christ. In fact, notice in verse number 7, you see the grace of Christ enriches you. Verse 7. So that you are not lacking any gift. Notice that word gift. That's the word charisma. It's a derivative of charis. That's the word for grace in Greek. And so this is a gift of grace. He's saying you are not lacking any gift of grace from God. God has given you everything you need in Jesus Christ. Now look at Second Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. So next chapter, look at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 says that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us this grace. 1 Corinthians 2, 12. Now we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given. That's charisma. It's he's given us this gift of grace given us by God. Go to chapter 3. Notice 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says his entire life and his entire ministry is powered. It's fueled by the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 3.10. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. You see, Paul didn't lay the foundation of the church. That's not accurate to say. It was not Paul who laid the foundation of the church. It was God's grace through Paul that laid the foundation of the church. That's what he's saying right there. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says here, the situation of life that you find yourself in is actually as a result of God's grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul was single. That was a gift of God to him so he could minister in a unique way. And he's saying, I wish that there are other people who had that gift as well. And he says, but each has his own gift. There's the gift of grace from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul was teaching here, that God made him single, and that actually was a gift to him so he could serve God in a unique way, and also he could serve the church, bless them. And he was saying that's a result of grace. God's sovereign situation of life that he has placed you in was and is governed by grace. Did you catch that? It's God's loving work in your life. You're like, I don't like the situation of life I'm in. It's actually God's gift to you of grace. We need to receive it as such and seek to use it for his glory. How about 1 Corinthians 12? Go to 1 Corinthians 12. We spent a number of weeks on this. 1 Corinthians 12, you have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That is the grace the Holy Spirit gives to us to build up one another to love one another. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. That's the gifts of grace, but the same Spirit. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 15. This is just a, a few select passage, passages to show us that God's grace is throughout our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, notice Paul's testimony. That his identity as a believing apostle was due only to the grace of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So, first of all, notice this. God's grace explained Paul's identity. In other words, who Paul is or who Paul was. If Paul wanted to explain, how did I change? How did I become like this? What did God do in my life? He says, it's by God's grace. God's grace explained his identity, who he was. Look at verse 10. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So grace explained his identity in Christ. That's who, that's who he is. Grace explained his work for Christ. That's what he did. And just a little note that we're going to focus more on that second part, his work for Christ next week. 
Paul was saying here, though, every aspect of his life, his salvation, his ministry, his work, everything was gifted by God, empowered by God. It's called grace. And Paul did nothing. Paul did nothing to deserve God's work of love in his life. He did nothing to earn it, to merit it. And can I tell you, soul, one created by God, there is nothing that you have ever done to merit anything from God. God never saw a spark of goodness in Paul and was like, oh yeah, that's a good candidate for salvation. It's exact opposite. Paul was an abuser, a terrorist, a raging zealot. I mean, he led mobs to approve of executions. He enjoyed dragging women to prison. He tried to force them to renounce Christ. And here's the worst part. He did it all in the name of God. See, he he was the worst type of sinner. Not only was he a terrorist and an abuser, but he did it in the name of God. So God did not look at Paul and say, oh, well, there's so much goodness in Paul. No, the exact opposite. That's the same with us. God does not look at you and think, well, you're such a lovely person. I think I'm going to love you. No, you are loved by God because God chooses to love you. Because God loves those who are unlovely. Notice in verse number eight, he gives his testimony Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So he was talking about Christ's appearance, as how he appeared to the apostles and other disciples. He appeared to them before the ascension. But for Paul, Christ appeared to him after the ascension. So he's saying, it's, it's like I was born at the wrong time. Not, he wasn't really born at the wrong time, but that's... It was so unusual. It wasn't like everybody else. Christ appeared to him in an unusual way. But this also is what made him an apostle. In order to be an apostle, you have to have seen the risen Christ and also been taught by the risen Christ. And so that is definitely what happened to Paul. So he's given his credentials saying, I am a true apostle, even though it's a little different than everybody else. The look at verse 9. He says, though, though I'm... An apostle, I'm the least of the apostles. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Apart from the grace of God, Paul says he was the least. He was unworthy. Now think about that. Because if you were to rank all the apostles by human ideas, by human values, where would Paul rank? I mean, who is it that spread the gospel around the Roman Empire? Who wrote half of the books of the New Testament? I mean, who was the smartest apostle? I mean, Paul had the academic credentials. And he, was, he studied under the, one of the most intelligent academic minds of the Jewish people. He studied under Rabbi Gamaliel. Thirteen of the epistles in the New Testament were penned by Paul. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, Luke predominantly records the works of Paul. It's like the works of the apostles, but it's like apostles, Paul, you know. If you were to look at Paul as an apostle and compare him to the other apostles, he, by human standards, is at the top. So how could Paul say he's the least of the apostles? Well, it's because Paul had true humility. Paul saw himself as least because he accurately perceived himself. He understood who God is and he understood who he was. This is not a fake humility. This is Paul's actual view of himself as he considered himself compared to the holy God. I mean, who was Paul without grace? If he removed God's grace in his life, at the very end of verse number nine, he says who he was. I was a persecutor. I 
persecuted the church. And we think about Peter. We're like, oh, Peter, you know, he denied Jesus. That was, and that was bad. And, you know, Peter said some very foolish things. Peter didn't drag people to prison. He didn't kill people, right? And, and I'm, I'm comparing them because I want you to understand, like, I mean, we think about Peter and we think, oh, he's the bad one and Peter's the good. Like, there were some, obviously some bad things in Peter's life. Don't get me wrong, right? But think about how bad Paul actually was. Why did Paul do that before he came to Christ? Well, it's because Paul was without the grace of Christ. Left to himself, Paul was a hate-filled, angry, proud, self-righteous person, just like we are without the grace of Christ. Left to yourself, you are a vile, wicked, self-centered person. The scripture says we are darkened in our understanding without Christ, hardened, calloused, given over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Without Christ, that's the direction our heart goes. And that's why, friend, that's the worst thing God can do for us is give us over to ourselves. When we say, I'm going to choose my sin, and God says, you're going to choose your sin? You can have it. That's the worst thing that can happen to you because that is a very lonely, dark, hellish place to be. And the only thing, the only thing that can change your life and your perspective is God's loving work called grace. When God's grace touched Paul's soul and saved him, his perspective changed. He was overwhelmed with this sin. He no longer excused his sin. It wasn't like, well, you know, this is how I grew up. You know, I mean, I, I couldn't help it. Or, well, this is someone else's fault. You know, this is what this person did to me or taught me. Or, or he, he didn't even argue that. Well, I, I was pretty religious, though. I mean, I actually have a lot of the Old Testament memorized. God, don't you think that's a pretty good thing? He doesn't care. He doesn't impress God. No, he actually, he confessed, no, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm the least. In fact, even think about this verse, 1 Timothy 1.13. Paul testified that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But what happened? What changed? The grace of our Lord overflowed to me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You know the reason why Paul had faith and love? It came by the grace of God. And then Paul goes on to say, so here's a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then Paul can't help but say, of whom I am the foremost. He's not just the least of the apostles. He says, I'm the worst sinner. Was Paul putting this on? Was this just like Paul's way of saying, you know, I'm, I want to be humble? No, this is Paul's true perspective. And you say, well, maybe, maybe this is because he just got saved, you know, and this is his perspective after he got saved. And, you know, he was remembering all that stuff and he was thinking, oh, that was really bad. I, you know, I was the worst of sinners. No, actually, this was written at the end of his life. He'd been saved for years. He was an old man when he wrote this. And his perspective was that he was the foremost of sinners. And why is that? Why did he have this perspective as he got older? Because isn't it as you get older, aren't you supposed to think that you're a better person? Like you're supposed to be more like Jesus. And so the more you become like Jesus, the better person you are. So then you, therefore you think I'm better than I was and than all these other people are. Isn't that what it's supposed to be like? Well, Christ does change us and make us more like Christ. But here's the reality. The more we understand the grace of God, the more we understand the holiness of God, the more we realize how much we need the grace of God and how far short we fall of the glory of God. Thomas Gunthry perfectly pictured 
Paul's progression when he wrote this. The Christian is like the ripening corn. The riper he grows, the more lowly bends his head. And the truth is, spiritual maturity actually causes us to have a more lowly mind, to think to think in a way that's more humble about ourselves and more exalted about God. So that's why Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's this understanding that everything in my life that is a blessing, all of salvation, all of God's goodness is from his grace. And Paul didn't go around bragging about how much he knew because all of his knowledge came from the grace of God. God's the one with wisdom. If he has any wisdom, where did he get it? It's from God. Paul's salvation is all from God. I mean, I could go through scripture after scripture to show this to you, but God predestined Paul by grace. Grace called Paul to salvation. Grace gave Paul repentance and faith. Grace caused him to be born again. Grace justified him. Grace adopted him. Grace sanctified him. Grace disciplined him when he did what was wrong, and Christ then forgave him by grace. Grace continued to forgive Paul. Grace gave him peace beyond all understanding. Grace placed him and equipped him in the churches to minister to souls. Grace sustained him, even though he had a suffering, a thorn in the flesh, and he just couldn't handle it. Grace actually was sufficient for him. He was content because of the grace of God in his life, and he had joy in prison because of grace. Every soul that was saved under his ministry, every church that was started, any fruit in his life was not a result of Paul. It was God's grace through him. God's love was activated in Paul God's love was channeled through Paul. That's called grace. And I think I'm hoping that we get the point. I'm trying to hammer this in my heart and in your heart because I want us to get the point. And that is that it's by grace, by the grace of God alone, that we are who we are. And what gets in the way of grace? It's pride. Pride is believing that I am good in myself. Pride thinks the good I've done is because I earned it. I deserve this. Pride demands God do what I want because I'm pretty wise. If I was God, this is what I would do. That's pride. Pride looks at other people and thinks of myself as better than them. Pride compares Pride justifies. Pride is a very high view of self. Peter and James wrote in their epistles, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. It's like, think about a, a peewee football game. And you have this little 26, you know, pound little boy, and he's going to run the football. He's going to run across the line of scrimmage. And there on the other side, of the line of scrimmage is Bryant McKinney. Brian McKinney is six foot eight, 350 pounds. He's one of the biggest guys in football, according to playerbios.com. And that little boy is going to try to run across the line of scrimmage. And if that guy was cruel, <laughs> he would stop him, right? I mean, he would flatten him, right? In other words, the point is, is that if, if he was to oppose that football player, that little boy, if he, was, if he was to oppose him, he wouldn't get very far. Listen, God opposes the proud. He's the omnipotent God. Who are you? But notice what he does. He gives grace to the humble. Oh, his loving, kind work is invited into your life by grace. Let's think about ourselves. When we... When we look around this room, do you consider yourself better than other people? When you think about the good things that you have or the things that you've done, do you attribute that to yourself? Maybe a little bragging here, a little boasting here. Do you 
make other people seem small so you can seem a little bigger? I mean, if you were to rank the sinners on earth, where would you put yourself? If you were to rank the sinners in your home, where would you put yourself? The person with an accurate view of self sees yourself at the bottom. And why is that? Because Christ is at the top. John the Baptist said, He, Christ, must increase, and I must decrease. And those with spiritual maturity have that mindset, that humble mindset that counts others as more valuable, more important than oneself. God's work of grace lowers our view of ourself and exalts our view of him. So we say, I am what I am only by the grace of God. In fact, Paul I was thinking about this one, Ephesians 3, Paul says, to me though, I am the very least, and he just keeps going on in these books about this, of all the saints. When he went to Ephesus, he came from Corinth. So he he goes to Ephesus, and of course later on he wrote this letter, but I mean, he had to have these people in mind, and the church of Corinth, I mean, they're fighting, they're divisive, they're, you know, gossiping, it's, and he's, And so he's going to list all the people in the church. And where does Paul put himself? I'm the least. This isn't self-loathing. This is comprehending. This is comprehending what Paul really believes he deserves. And that is nothing. See, God doesn't save sinners because they're good people. If you think, well, God saves me or God does this for me or God will do this for me. that's That's in Christianity, right? Well, God will do this for you if you're a good person. God does not save sinners because you're a good person. God does not forgive sins because you go to church, because you get baptized, because you do your best. The good news is not that you do your part and God will do his. Here's the good news, that Christ saves sinners by grace alone. It's his work alone. Salvation is given to you by grace. And what is it that God ultimately is giving us? I mean, what is it that he's giving us? He's giving us himself. What grace gives us is God himself. Grace brings us to God. Grace reconciles us to God. Grace gives you the gift of enjoying God and fellowship with him. So notice in verse number nine, he says, left to myself, I'm the least Verse number 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so this is his identity in Christ. This is who Christ has made him to be. And who has Christ made him to be? Who are you, believer in Jesus Christ? Who are you by grace? Well, you're a child of God. You're a saint. Again, that's who God has made you to be. You're adopted, you're chosen, you're forgiven, you're cleansed. You are God's. That's grace. Notice in verse number 10, he says, his grace toward me was not in vain. It was effectual. It worked. And it's interesting because he says, his grace toward me, it's to me. How did he start the book of 1 Corinthians? It's his grace to me. And then notice in verse number 10, he says, also at the very end of verse 10, the grace of God that is with me. So his grace came to me at salvation. He graced me and his grace stays with me throughout my work for him on earth. And that's going to be our focus next week. But let's just end by thinking about this grace that has come to us through Christ Jesus' work on the cross. Christian, are you living and abiding depending upon the grace of God? When you consider yourself and you consider your life and you think about what's going on and what's happened and who God is, do you consider God's grace? Do you recognize that you are only good because of the grace of God? That anything good you do is only good because of the grace of God. That everything in your life must be empowered and motivated by the grace of God. I am 
what I am by the grace of God. And then, friend, if you are in here without Jesus Christ, let me tell you, based on the authority of God's word, there's no person in here that is too far from God that his grace cannot reach. If you are without Jesus Christ, his grace can so touch your soul and transform your life and transform and change your eternity. It was December of 1772. John Newton was 47 years old, and he sat down to write a poem that we know as the song Amazing Grace. And he reflected on his life. You see, John Newton, earlier in his life, he was a slave trader. Like, the worst of the worst, right? I mean, he actually went into Africa, stole people, kidnapped people, put them on a boat, took them over to America, and he sold them into slavery. Children, men, and women... That's really bad. That's wicked. But his mom prayed for him for years. He knew the gospel. In fact, he regularly took the Lord's name in vain. So he knew the name of the Lord, though he did not trust the Lord. He never humbled himself under the almighty hand of God. But he was on a boat one day on the ship. A storm came up. It was dark. The boat looked like it was going to sink. So he grabbed on to the boat and he cried out, Lord, save me. And he wasn't just afraid of drowning, although that definitely was something that was a factor. But he knew when he took in that water in his lungs and he took his last breath that he would be in hell. He knew it. The the weight of his sin was upon his soul. And so when he was crying out, Lord, save me, he was crying out for God to have his grace rescue him. And you know what happened? He was rescued. So much so that he renounced that lifestyle. He actually became a preacher. And he wrote this song, Amazing Grace. And you know this song, right? Let's sing it a cappella, and then we're going to come up in a moment. We're going to have Jorge come up and lead it for us. Let's sing it the traditional way. Here we go. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. thinking about yourself and the amazing grace that God has given to you. Let's sing Twas Grace. Twas Grace Amazing is God's grace. 